Well, I would invite you to turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11, page 717 in our church Bibles, Mark chapter 11. In just a moment or two, we're going to begin reading from verse 12. Just two quick things. Uh, This Wednesday evening, uh, July 25th, Family Day at the Lake and Baptism. It's going to begin at 6 p.m., so everyone is invited to come. There's a potluck meal to joy. We're going to celebrate three baptisms, maybe one more, and a brief time of prayer after that. And, uh, and the beef is bring a dish or two to share, chairs, beach gear, and sometimes uh, mosquito repellent will help too. just depends on the day, really. But it's at the Daigle Lake lot, and uh, George and Jamie always have been so gracious, and we begin to, we will be able to meet there. Directions are on our website, westcohassettchapel.com. And also, I think, some info is in the worship folder. So just keep that in mind. And then the second announcement is we're going to keep working through Mark until the first week of August. Then we're going to take a little break, do some other things, and then Lord willing, we'll be back in the battle there in September sometime. So just, just keep that in mind as you're ordering, ordering things. All right. Verse 12, Mark chapter 11. The next day as they, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry, seeing in the distance a fig tree, In leaf, he went out to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began to drive, driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. And would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called the house of prayer for all nations? But you made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. For they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. Verse 19, when evening came, they went out of the city. Amen. God bless the reading of his word this morning. Let's pray together. God and Father, we cannot thank you enough for the Bible, for the Holy Spirit, the divine author of the Bible, for Mark, the writer of this gospel, and for translators who in time gave us the Bible in the language of our land. And we thank you for the church this morning, especially this local church, as we have come together as one to learn from you as your word is being taught. And Father, since we'll never grow past our consistent need to sit under the proper teaching of the Bible, we ask that you take pity on us now, that you would extend your mercy over all of us, and that by your spirit we would understand the text, we would believe it, we would apply it where it is fitting, and that you might have mercy on me, God, and help me preach it as the least of all saints and the least of all pastors. For Jesus' sake, we ask this. Amen. Well, this is important. One of the fundamental rules of biblical interpretation is to let the Bible interpret the Bible. And you should be glad that there's rules on how to interpret the Bible, because if there wasn't, then anyone could pretty much say anything, and you could be in those settings where some subjective person would basically say, this is what the text means, because I'm pretty sure God told me this afternoon what it means. 
You'd be in a kind of a mess. So the, there's no secret messages in the Bible. The Bible is and can be understood by all. And it's important that we understand that. So when I say one of the basic fundamental rules of the Bible is to let the Bible interpret the Bible, it's going to serve us well, not only through these verses, but also through this introduction. Because as you think about it, this, uh, this idea of Jesus um, cursing a, a fig tree, which is the only destructive miracle that we know of uh, in, the, in the life of Jesus. So as you think about that, and then, of course, his behavior in the temple, you've got to have a right sense of what is driving Jesus' deeds and his words and, and why these events were of such importance that the Holy Spirit, the divine author of the Bible, determined that we needed to know this account, even though throughout history, this idea of Jesus getting so apparently angry and tables being turned, that's troubled a lot of people throughout history. In fact, I was reading this week that if you, Bertrand Russell was a philosopher, lived in the 20th century. He wrote a, a, thesis state, or a thesis document, Why I Am Not a Christian. And this section that we just read is one of the reasons why he said he was not going to become a Christian. So in light of that, this is what we need to know going to take the lens back a little bit. The God of the Bible is a loving God. And his plan from all eternity is to undo what took place in Eden, right? And in that, he's going to rescue people from the fallout of Eden, which is what? Well, it's sin, it's power, it's penalty, and one day, thank God, it's presence. People can't save themselves from their sins, nor can we stop sinning, not in these bodies. So we need to be rescued. And therefore, the whole bent of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is the unfolding story of how our God, in his great love, has worked out our deliverance. And how God himself is seeking to forgive people, restore people, and revolutionize their life. And of course, the climax of God's plan is in the person of God's son, Jesus. Because Jesus has paid our sin debt to God in full. However... The story of the Bible also reveals how evil people are opposing God's plan to save. And often, many of those people who oppose God's plan are, can you believe it? They're religious, as in the case here. In fact, many of the religious leaders who claim they speak for God and the very temple of God, the very place we're told where the glory of God and the presence of God dwelled in that time period, they want to kill the Son of God. And you just need to read your Old Testament, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, read your Gospels, of course, and you'll find out what I'm saying is true. So the storyline of the Bible is God wills to save people from every nation and establish his rule and his son in their lives, but there are wicked religious men who are opposing God's plan, so much so that as Jesus steps onto the stage of human history, the Jerusalem temple, the very place where God's people go to meet God, it is in an absolute mess. The temple of God is opposing God. And this, to me, is the most thought-provoking part because, you see, when you ask yourself the question, what is driving this rebellion, right? What is driving this anti-God, anti-Christ behavior? The answer to that question is that it lies chiefly in one area. And that one area is greed. Greed is in money, verses 15 and 16. In fact, Jesus calls them robbers, verse 17. And greed and their power and authority over the crowds, that's verse 18. And greed, says the Oxford Online Dictionary, is an intense 
and selfish desire to continually get more of something. This is a secular dictionary, especially wealth and power. Two things that are driving this whole story here, wealth and power. And so why that's so thought-provoking is that when you read the Bible, the primary anti-God, anti-Christ, anti-gospel behavior is rooted in greed. How do you know that? Well, remember the fundamental rule of biblical interpretation. One of them is let the Bible interpret the Bible. So if we want to get into the very psyche of these anti-God, anti-gospel behavior, and those who are opposing Jesus here as we read, and frankly, anywhere at any time, to be honest with you, we have to let the Bible interpret the Bible. So the Bible says that greed is idolatry. Okay, not adultery, right? Idolatry. Treasuring something more than God. And in this case, wealth and power. In fact, listen to your Bible, Ephesians 5.5. 5. For this you can be sure. No immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Colossians 3.5. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, nature, right? Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Now, idolatry at its root is not only treasuring something or someone more than God, it's false worship. It's when we choose our wills over God's will, thus rebelling against God's rightful claim over our life. And greed, which is idolatry, is essentially extreme selfishness or extreme self-will where we are dissatisfied with the things that God wills it, and thus we work against God and we decide against God. And that's exactly what was taking place in the temple by these temple authorities. They're working against God's redemptive plan, and they're opposing God's Son, who is the strength of that plan. Subsequently, at the heart of their greed, then, our greed in general is self-worship, because greed says, I know better than God, therefore there's another God I will yield to. So again, greed, which is idolatry, is worshiping something or even someone other than God. And so we create a God of our own mind. And this God thinks like us. He speaks like us. He does things a whole lot like us. Or, and I've seen this happen, we bow down to someone else's God, someone else's mind. It's called a cult. It's called an unhealthy relationship. And you follow that same sequence. Greed, idolatry, self-worship. And in that, we fight against what God has made so clear. But not only that, this kind of greed or self-worship, Peter, and 2 Peter writes, this is 2 Peter 2, it's in Jude as well, but specifically 2 Peter. He's going to tell us that greed is the driving force behind false teaching and false teachers, okay? So what is the thing that moves them? Primarily greed. Listen to your Bible, 2 Peter 2. But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there were false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them. Many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you. Verse 14, they are experts in greed. Okay, so think with me. This is not like a false teaching is, or a false teacher for that matter, is like a $3 bill that you made with construction paper and a magic marker, right? Pretty easy to pick out. No, this is like a counterfeit $20 bill because they're experts. And they'll fool most people if they're not careful. We are on our way, thank God, to see Jared graduate in May. We had 
we went the route in Illinois where you pay the toll and I had a $20 bill and I gave the lady the $20 bill. She said, hold up. And she did the thing where she was checking it. And I said, why are you doing that? Well, we've had lots of counterfeit $20 bills. It's like, okay, that makes complete sense. In other words, these teachers are so good at being greedy that most people would never know that they're being greedy. Again, listen to your Bibles, Romans 16, verse 17 through 19. Paul says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause division and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them. In other words, watch out for these greedy, anti-gospel, either by application or proclamation people. Paul says, for such people are not serving our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetite, greedy, selfish, by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. You mean like the two million people who, who came to the temple to celebrate Passover, to worship God, to have their sins forgiven, and they are paying a boatload of money and hearing foul instruction to their detriment. Yeah, exactly. So I want you to put this together in your mind. Temple authorities opposing Jesus, they are not some like high brain men who want to take over the world. No, they just want to keep their little world together just the way they like it. And they hate the outsiders. They hate the Gentiles. They want to keep their money income going the way it's been going. They want to behave in the temple as if it was their temple when it was God's temple for his honor and for his glory and for his purpose. And remember, Luke writes in chapter 16, verse 14, when he says, the Pharisees who loved money because they were sneering at Jesus because he said, you can't serve God in money. And they're like, ha, ha, ha. Okay, that's a Sunday morning thing, but you got to get to Monday, Jesus. And the money's going to be there. They were sneering at him. And so they will keep using their little self-interest lines of thinking going as they are. And as you get to the root of it, their behavior is simple greed. Selfishness rooted in greed, which is, the Bible says, idolatry. And it culminates right into a new command. You see verse 18? There's a new command there. Let's find a way to kill Jesus. Whoa! I never get stunned by that. I read that and I'm thinking religious people who read the Torah every day and the best they can do is we want to kill this man because he's getting away of our money and he's getting away of our power and authority. What a profoundly small-minded, profoundly selfish, profoundly greedy, profoundly evil way to exist and to think. Because they don't want to take over the world. They want to keep much of the world out. They hate the Gentiles. And they want to keep their little world as it is. However, Jesus says, look, my father wants to save the world. This temple was made for a place for people all kinds of people from all kinds of places to, to meet God and to pray. However, in your small-minded, greedy little lives, which is also the basis of your false teaching, right? Greed, because I'm going to say what I want to say because I, I want to keep the thing rolling. You're actually cutting people off from God. You're cheating them at the tables. Okay, that's bad. But the worst thing is you're cutting them off from God. And loved ones, that is the driving force of this kind of highly animated but prophetic behavior in the temple court. So Jesus takes three actions. If your Bible's open, you'll see this. He curses a fig tree, verse 14. He turns tables over, verses 15 and 16. And he gives instruction, verses 17 and 18. 
And what he's saying in all of it is, listen, this whole temple stuff that you see here, it is all coming to an end. It is all coming to an end. So, loved ones, make no mistake, although the temple authorities, they didn't want to rule over the world. They just wanted to keep their little world together. Jesus wills to rule the world. Not because Jesus is mad at the world. No, Jesus loves the world, and his rule is a rule of grace, and the good news of Jesus reigns in his kingdom. And the grace of God opens the door wide to the whole world. While these men, these religious men, the best they could do is like, we like it like this, and we like it like that, and don't change that, and we're going to keep the door like this wide open. So what is driving Jesus' deeds here is not hate, but love. Love for the people of every nation, love for his Father's honor, his Father's house, and love for his Father's plan. That's what's driving him. Remember in John's Gospel, we read a quote from Psalm 69, 9, zeal for his house will consume me. His house. Because Jesus knows who this temple, this house, belongs to. Listen carefully. It is not the people's house, as in the White House. As in the people rule over his house. No, it is God's house. He rules over it. But the good news is, is that God's house welcomes everyone gladly. The whole human race is welcome in my house, but you can only become part of my house when you see your need of my mercy. Because of your sin, and therefore you humble yourself, and you ask me, Jesus, to save you. You've got to understand that. It is fundamental that you understand that, and so much, I'm going to repeat it again. The house, it's not the people's house. It's in the White House. The people don't rule over it. It's God's house. He rules over it, but the good news is that God's house is open to the whole human race. Everyone's welcome, but you can only become part of the house. As you see your need of God's mercy, because of your sin, humble yourself and say, God, please save me. That's how you become part of the house. So what I want you to see is God's salvation is being blocked by these religious authorities. The honor of God's name mangled, and the temple authorities essentially were getting in the way of the gospel. They were getting in the way of the God's gospel. Consequently, in these verses, Jesus enters a temple. He hits them hard. Not literally, right? Figuratively. He's not tipping people. He's tipping tables, right? Two places. The money and their authority by way of their instruction. Pocketbooks, verses 16 and 17. Instruction, verse 18. Okay, now one last thing before we move along in these verses. It's important that you keep in mind not to equate this church building physical as equal to the temple here in Mark. You're tempted to do that. Don't do it. No, in the New Testament, Jesus is the new temple. He is the relocation of God's presence. God's presence is no longer in a place, the temple, but in a person, Jesus Christ. And everyone who's in Christ, Peter writes in 1 Peter 2, they're like living stones being built up together, a spiritual house, which is the place of God's dwelling. If you like, it's just like kids in the kingdom. Look, the building is not holy ground. Good memories, we understand that. Great things happen, we understand that. The building is not holy ground. It's just a place where holy people meet. Holy people in Christ meet. Holy people, by the way, who had to be declared holy by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Why do we have to be declared holy? Well, the Bible says it pretty clearly, right? In Isaiah 53, 
Because you see, we like sheep, all of us have gone astray. Each of us have gone, gone our own way. But the good news is the Lord has laid on him, the Lord Jesus Christ, the iniquity of us all. That's the entry point into the house. All right, three points. Number one, the fig tree is cursed. Now, how do we know it's cursed? Well, if your Bible's open, verse 21, P- Peter said it was cursed. The thing was cursed. But in verse 11, what we do is we find Jesus. He's there in Jerusalem. It's late at night. Remember, we said he looked around at everything. And by the way, the word looked is a, is a word for the architect. He's surveying the scene. He has a high personal involvement in what is taking place here. And so he's looking at what was left behind from the order of the day. In light of that, he's thinking things through. He sleeps on it in Bethany with the 12 following suit. The next day, verse 12, right? What do experts tell us? Never make your big decisions at night. Make them in the morning, right? The next day, he leaves Bethany. He's headed to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is about a mile and a half away. Mark tells us Jesus is hungry, verse 12. What do you know? Jesus is actually human, right? Humans get hungry. Jesus in humanity gets hungry. Verse 13, in the distance, there's potentially some breakfast. And what do we hear, kids? Breakfast is the most important meal of the day. And so Jesus finds this fig tree, and he's wondering if it has any fruit. Now, we won't take too long on this, but some Bible scholars and just about every Bible critic says, listen, because of the time of year and because of the situation, this fruitless fig section is actually legend. It couldn't have taken place the way that it took place. And there, there's no concern there at all. We'll get into more detail next time. However, just know there's two circumstances which history and um, the Bible tells us where Jesus' expectation to find fruit was completely justified. But here's the point. When Jesus sees this fig tree with no fruit, in verse 14, he says, may no one ever eat from you again. Essentially, he curses it. This is not the evil use of power. This is a powerful, prophetic, symbolic act that is going to teach a deep spiritual truth. In fact, if you read your Old Testament, you'll find that it was common practice for God's prophets to use something out of nature, everyday life, to teach God. God's truth. So think Amos and his plumb line. Think Zechariah and his measuring line. You can even actually think of baptism and the symbol, symbolism of water trying to teach us something. So what happens is, is in the ordinary course of events, to illustrate the hypocrisy of the temple, Jesus uses this fig tree. The tree looked like it should have had fruit, but upon close examination, it didn't have any fruit. The temple looked like it should have had fruit. Upon closer examination, it didn't have any fruit. Was there lots of activity? Oh, yeah, there was lots of activity. Lots of it. It looked like it was useful. But Jesus, the one who knows all things, he says, this place is useless. And the fig tree, the purpose of why God created it was what? So that there would be fruit. Was there any fruit? No. The temple, the purpose why God created it, place of prayer for the world, Nothing. Nothing. So there's no reason to think that Jesus was out of control. Indeed, Mark 11, verse 13, you see it there. It was not the season for figs, but fruitful fig trees in the off-season would display some kind of semi-edible fruit that would later ripen or flowers which you could have eaten. But this tree had none of that. It was barren. All it had was leaves. 
So when Jesus curses the fig tree, in this kind of symbolic act, a la Jeremiah 19, you might want to read that for homework, because the fig tree was often used as a symbol for Israel. And so again, just like the fig tree had no fruit, Israel's temple had no life. It was filled with hypocrisy, lots of dead ceremony, and verse 17, can you believe it? Robbery. Now don't get, don't, they made a fine show of religion, okay? The incense burning, two million people walking around, 15,000 priests somewhere walking around, animals clamoring, blood flying everywhere, right? The place looked like it was hopping, like it was alive. Jesus said it's dead. A long time ago, a long time ago, every year it's getting longer. When I was a kid, I used to go to my brother's wrestling matches. And this was in Miami, Florida. And there was a wrestler named Mike Neck. He sounds like he should win every match. Mike Neck never won a match. But the first 30 seconds of every one of Mike Neck's wrestling match, you'd think Mike's going to kill the guy. In fact, he could beat the whole team because he was so animated. He was so lively. He would do all this stuff. But 30 seconds, Mike was usually pinned. That's what was happening here. The one who knows all things, the only one able to see to the heart of the thing, says this place is useless. It is fruitless, and it's going to end. Okay, before we get to the next point, the temptation here is to say, and look at all of you. (laughs) I'm not going to do that. Just let me do this. The book of Revelation says that there was a church that had a reputation of being alive. But Jesus said, you're dead. So the word on the street, the place is hopping, but the word from heaven is dead. So if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, and you examine your own life, and you say to yourself, I'm not bearing any fruit, no kingdom fruit, no gospel fruit, no evangelistic fruit. So if you're honest enough to acknowledge this, then my guess is you'll be wise enough to consider the words of Jesus. But here's here's the secret, if you would to bearing fruit. You ready? John chapter 15, verses 6, 7, and 8. Jesus says, I am the vine, and you are the branches. If you remain in me, and my word remains in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourself to be my disciples. Think it out. I thought it out, but not about you about me. Because this word is not only a mirror to you, it's also a mirror to me. That's number one, a fig tree curse. Number two, here we go, tables overturned. Verse 15, on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. So just if you want to, just picture yourself, you're there. Okay? You're there and you're with all the other millions of people. You're in the outer court temple proper. Uh, this is the court of the Gentiles. So you're not in the sanctuary. You're not in the holy place. You're definitely not in the holy of holies. If you know those things. And so you're one of millions of people and you're there to fulfill your Passover obligation. Right? The Passover was a festival that commemorated the um, liberation of God's people, the Israelites, from their slavery in Egypt. Now, the vast majority of people, instead of bringing their own animals on the journey to make their Passover sacrifices as was required, 
They waited until they arrived in Jerusalem in order to purchase those animals on site. You would understand that. However, what started as a good service turned into something cruel. And the sale of these animal sacrifices became one of the most profitable sources of revenue for the temple authorities, right? Because the celebration of Passover was an obligation for every Jew, which meant there's going to be a whole lot of animals and a whole lot of people. And not only this, another thing that they did was there were these tables that were in charge of currency exchange. Okay, what does that mean? Well, every adult Jewish male had to pay an annual temple tax due just before Passover. So the temple officials, they set up these tables, and the temple itself only accepted one form of currency. I mean, you can understand this. You go to a foreign land, most foreign lands, peso, yen, dollar. Theirs was a silver shekel of Tyree, which meant before the men could pay their dues, they had to exchange their coins. And of course, here we go, there was a fee exchange, verse 15. And the money changers used that fee exchange essentially to rob the people because their rates were so incredibly high. So put yourself in their shoes. The average Jewish family, you just want to go because you're supposed to go. The exchange rates inflated. The animals were being sold at a premium price. Think here of going to a professional football game. You want to have a nice time, but you're going to have to pay, you know, $7 for a Coke, $10 for a hamburger. If you want ice cream, that's going to be 10 bucks. That's the kind of stuff that starts arguments in a home, right? So can you imagine the huge money-making machine which was going on in God's house? And if you think about it, why not? Because what did the religious leaders think? Oh, this is what they thought. Wealth is a sign of God's blessing, right? So how a lot of wealth. That must mean that this is great between us. No, no. And Jesus knows that. And symbolically and prophetically, he begins to drive out both the buyers and the sellers, verse 15, and even the money changers. Now, what about these uh, doves? Verse 15, it made me think of that Prince song. This is what it sounds like when Dove cried. Anyway, sorry, I shouldn't have said that. Strike that from the record. Okay, because you think, because that was part of the buying and selling. Why, are, why is Jesus kind of, and Mark, want us to know about this? Well, because the doves were sold to the desperate poor that couldn't afford a usual sacrifice for animals, which meant that these priests were exploiting, abusing the poor. And they were doing it in the name of God. Two things. Proverbs 19.17. Whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord. I read a great article. It's from 2013. New York Times. Money, making money off the poor. You should Google it and read it. It's a sad article. Making money off the poor. So no wonder Jesus Christ was tipping tables. He was doing exactly what the Bible told him to do. Listen to your Bible. Isaiah 11.4. With righteousness, he, and this is prophetic about Jesus, he is judging the needy with justice. He will give decisions for the poor of the earth. Jeremiah 22.3. Rescue the victim of robbery from the hand of his oppressor. Jesus, tables turn, doing exactly what the Bible says to do. And one of the things personally I like about the younger generation is that they they have such a strong concern for justice, 
right? A strong concern for equality. They confront exploitation, whether it be in women or young people or aged or poor. They, they, this is not right. And they say it, and they, a lot of them actually do something about it. The anger of Jesus Christ here is a righteous anger. His actions are biblical. They are just. In fact, listen to this definition of anger from the 17th century pastor, Richard Baxter. Anger is a passionate emotional response to a perceived evil that would cross us or hinder us from something good. It has been given to us by God for our good. It stirs up It stirs us up to vigorous resistance against anything that opposes God's glory, our salvation, our real good, or the good of our neighbors. Anger is therefore good when it is used to God's appointed end in the right manner and right measure. Richard Baxter, 17th century preacher. Jesus' anger is completely justified in his actions because he does everything well. Is completely correct. One last thing before we get to the, the next point. You see that phrase in verse 16? He would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. So I was trying to picture that in my mind and I did some digging, lots and lots of digging, digging and I kind of I stumbled onto this quote and it's a quote about the code of behavior that wasn't written in the Bible. It was kind of like their protocol, a pattern of behavior for the temple. And listen to what it says. A man may not enter into the temple court with his staff or his sandals or his wallet, nor may he make of it a shortcut, still less may he spit there. Now what that is saying is essentially this. There is a dignity which was attached to the temple of God. So it wasn't a free-for-all. You can't just do whatever you want in the temple of God. It's not like a mall. This is not your house, Jesus would say. This is my Father's house. And what Jesus is saying, really by extension, this is my house. And look what you've done to it. Look what you've done to it. Now, the Jewish people had so many advantages, so many exclusive privileges that were given to them. They were elected, chosen by God for a specific assignment. Other nations did not know that blessing, but they did. And if you're a parent and you pour your life into a child, what do you expect? Pour your life into them? You have some expectations like, come on. Mom and dad are making a whole lot of sacrifices for you. We want to see something wonderful. They didn't have anything wonderful. Instead of growing better, they grew worse. Final point. Fig tree was cursed. A picture of the temple. Your days are numbered. Tables overturned. This is God's house. This is not your house. People are being cheated. Finally, the Bible being taught. And I added the word correctly. Because the word correctly is very important because not only was the motivation of the instruction of Jesus absolutely correct, right? He's not a money-making Jesus, like the temple guys, his teaching was all correct. Why was his teaching correct? For number one, he began with the Bible. He quotes his Old Testament. My house, this is Isaiah 56, 7. You see it there in your Bible in verse, um, verse 17. My house will be called the house of prayer for all the nations. But now he's quoting Jeremiah seven eleven. You have made it a den of robbers. 
thieves. That's the first thing. And also his interpretation and his application were correct because you see it had some effect. You see verse 18? The chief priest and the teachers of the law heard this and they began looking for a way to kill him because they feared him. Because the whole crowd was amazed, if you would, at him, at his teaching. You just, you want to line that up together? They were looking for a way to kill the one who was telling the truth because the truth made them afraid because that meant the crowds might have a better idea about this high dollar worship service, if you would, and what they're hearing from God and their whole little world is going to be ended. So what do you do? Instead of repenting, let's kill a man. Let's kill Jesus. 15,000 priests associated with the temple and Jesus right there says, every one of you are a pack of of thieves. Every one of you are robbers. He unnerved them. And by the way, do you see that word uh, kill in verse 18? The, the word there is essentially annihilate, to destroy. It means permanent, absolute destruction. And so figuratively, it's like we don't want any sign of him at all. So I began to think there are other ways they could have killed Jesus, you guys. Lots and lots of ways to kill Jesus. Back alley stuff, in the room stuff. But they determined to, to have him crucified. And at a crucifixion, when the body was dead, you remember what happens? They take the body down and they toss it in a heap. And the birds come and eat it and the wild animals and the wild dogs come and eat it. And sometimes they crunch on the bones and so you have no, you have nothing left really of that person to speak of. Annihilated. That's what they want. They didn't want a tomb. They wanted annihilated. You see, they couldn't put their Bibles together in their mind. They were blind to God's intention and they walked right into God's plan. Yes, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. You bet. Because Jesus, when he's hanging on that tree, is becoming a curse for me. Praise God he's becoming a curse for me. And he's taking on my sin once and for all. Once and for all. And the authorities couldn't see it. Which is why Mark records for us the crowds, again, were amazed. It's, literally, they were thunderstruck. Why were they thunderstruck? Because this is what they were hearing. Hey, listen, this house is for the world. This is not just a Jewish house. This is for the world. And he was telling them, God wants to save the world. And your leaders are blocking people from it. And he quotes the Old Testament. They're stealing from you. Therefore, he's telling them the gospel proper because he was preaching from the Old Testament testament correctly right instead of hearing which i'm sure they heard uh, listen everybody god is mad at you he's ticked because he knows you're not trying hard enough and you're not doing enough instead of that he said look how god loves you look how god wants to save you you can't rescue yourself and jesus was saying i am the new temple the presence of god is not stationary in one place it is mobile and it is me and anyone who comes to me i'll never cast away and I'll save you once and for all from your sin. Uh, no more money exchanges. No more overpriced animals. Uh, no more temple fees, right? And you want to move it into our day? None of that stuff is like, oh, you're sinning? Well, here's five steps to stop. You can just lower your sinning by 80%. Would you like to do that? This is great. But you're going to have to pay me $49.95 for the book and the tape and the movie. None of that. Can you imagine if you were there and you heard the words of Jesus? You would be thunderstruck. Can you imagine if you sat under teaching it was always like, ah, and you never heard the good news? 
Can you imagine? And what was blocking this stuff? Greed, which is idolatry, which is the love of money, and incorrect teaching, which was the driving force of these evil, wicked temple authorities. Hmm. Clearly, this is the spirit of Christ. Teach the gospel proper. Proclaim the gospel proper. Preach the gospel all the time. Live in the beautiful wonder and the freedom of the gospel. Apply it to everything in your life. Apply it to your right days and your wrong days. Protect the gospel. Advance the gospel. And loved ones, sometimes just get out of the way of the gospel. And pray. And pray. Let's end this way. Thinking about God's house being a house of prayer. Instead of saying, well, you know you don't pray enough. (laughs) Well, you know, how do you know? And how much is enough? You want me to quantify for you? I can't do that. Some of us pray a whole lot here. A whole lot. Some of us record hours and hours of prayer in a week. I don't know how much you pray in a week. So I don't have any authority to tell you to pray more because you may be praying lots and lots. And yeah, any Sunday you could say pray more and most of us would be like, you're right, we need to pray more. I get that. But instead of looking at ourselves, let's look at Jesus. Because in Jesus we have this great high priest who has ascended into heaven. He sits at the right hand of the Father and he mediates our prayers to the Father. So as we pray, Jesus, as our great high priest, he hears them and he speaks to the Father on our behalf about them. And by the way, thank God that Jesus speaks to the Father on our behalf even when we don't pray. Do you get that? Even when we don't pray. Our privilege is to pray, to go to the Father through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. But Jesus is so wonderful that even when we don't pray, he's there on our behalf. <laughs> Such good news. Don't leave angry today. Leave happy. Leave happy. We're going to sing a song and then we're going to have a benediction. So if you would bow with me, please. Father, please expand our minds and stir our hearts that we may enter into the enjoyment and the rest of our great gospel privileges. Help us to be profoundly moved and in love with Jesus in order that your glory would rest on us and be displayed in the, in the character and the quality of our lives. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen.